everyone's sensory system is definitely different. So I always will tell a new parent who's new to the OT world, we all have our own ways to decompress or to manage our, our emotions. So sometimes people sit there and they'll tap their knee, or you'll twirl your hair, or you'll chew gum. And these are ways that you're coping with something that may be causing you as an adult anxiety. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm really thrilled today to be talking to Nikki Perez in OT, and we're going to talk a lot about sensory, sensory input, sensory challenges, what you can do to help your kids when they are having some sensory struggles, Um, even sensory seekers who are looking for more sensory input. We can help them and to try to mitigate some of that, I guess, as well. So we're not just talking about sensory avoiders here. Welcome to the podcast, Nikki. Will you start by sharing who you are and what you do? Yes. Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Nikki, and I am an occupational therapist. I work for Montclair Speech Therapy in uh, New Jersey, and I primarily work with children. Awesome. I have to say the biggest aha for me starting out when my son was diagnosed with ADHD was when we started occupational therapy. Our occupational therapist started explaining all sorts of reasons why things were happening. And it was so good that we we connected with OT pretty early on because he was super hyperactive. And so I was able to realize that that was really sensory stuff at play there that was creating a lot of that. You know, he would crash into walls on purpose. He would throw himself on the floor. He would stand on his head on the sofa. You know, he was just that kid who was constantly crashing. And so when she really explained the sensory issues and challenges behind that, it was so incredibly helpful to us to not just understand it, but then know what we could do to support him better. And it was really, really powerful stuff. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you for everyone who's listening. Let's start, I think, by just talking about what do we mean when we talk about sensory? You know, most of us know sight, taste, touch, smell, but there's more to it than that. There is more to it. And one of the main takeaways when we're talking about sensory is just to kind of remember, it's the brain's ability to process all of the information that's around us. So all of the five senses that we know and we learn about, but then also adding into that the vestibular system and also the proprioceptive system, which what you were just talking about when I came to your son, all those seeking movements that kiddos kind of do, their proprioceptive system is looking for that input. So basically just giving um, some some deep pressure to muscles and joints. And that feels really nice for a lot of kids. And then on the flip side, a lot of that uh, running around and jumping and spinning and all of that is seeking out for the vestibular system. Yeah. And then sensory avoiders are, are the kids who 
loud noises really upset them or they avoid absolutely um, different things like crowded places. Absolutely. So the auditory system for those avoiders, you'll you'll really notice that a kiddo is covering their ears in noisy environments or they're going to be making their own noises to kind of drown out the sounds that they don't typically like to hear. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, the parents will come to me during the initial evaluation and they'll say the sound of a dog barking or my doorbell or the blender or the vacuum, my kid is petrified. And that is just so sad because these are things that are part of everyday life. Yeah. So when they're avoiding these types of things, uh, we need to figure out a way to help them cope and, and being able to live every single day without being fearful and without their sensory system going on overdrive because of these sounds. Yeah. And I've learned over the years that a lot of it really is sensory overwhelm. So much behavior comes from that, the inability to process it correctly or the inability to maybe deal with it to be okay, to feel okay in different sensory situations. Um, there's there's so much to it. And I think kids can be both a sensory seeker and a sensory avoider, right? Absolutely. We see that all the time. That's where it gets a little bit confusing. So yeah. one thing that gets confusing for a lot of parents is, is it sensory or is it behavior? And that's confusing for a lot of therapists too, right? And doctors too, because they're so interchangeable a lot of times. And they Sometimes it looks like it's a negative behavior or like a child may be doing something purposefully, right? We hear that all the time. Oh, they're just doing that on purpose. Not knowing that their body, uh, their insides, their brain, they just cannot control it um, when it comes to behavior. And then sensory seeking and sensory avoiding, again, you would have a child who's both, right? They could be wanting to seek out all of that movement and the crashing and the banging. But on the flip side, if they touch Play-Doh or sand or soapy water, their hands are instantly avoiding and they're, and they're reacting to that. So yeah, a kid can be avoiding and seeking at the same time. Yeah, my son definitely is. He's almost 18 now, so he doesn't struggle as much with a lot of that sensory stuff that he did when he was really young. But I found it really confusing myself to say, well, when there's a siren or a train coming or something, he's completely jumping out of his skin in anticipation even before it's loud. And yet he's crashing his body into things and he talks really loudly and he's really active. And the two didn't seem to kind of gel for a long time for me until I realized that they really they really were separate systems and they really could be very different in the same child. Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the things with the auditory system, you know, that that's challenging. A lot of families will say, you know, I read this on the internet and one of the things are headphones or earphones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that definitely is really helpful for a lot of kids. It's going to drown out that sound, right? That external s- stimuli that's really challenging for kiddos and parents don't want their kid to be a part of, of that, that stigma in my experience, but not knowing that they could do something in the comfort of their own home and do different types of like listening programs and listen to classical music with these headphones on that will really kind of help to, to cope with those sounds and to decrease that 
avoidance of the um, the more loud and sounds that you can't avoid. Yeah. And things like that can cause a lot of anxiety, which then causes that avoidance. Um, for a long time, my son would not go anywhere that he didn't have any experience with. Oh, yeah. He just for years would say, nope, not going, nope, not going. And we would use headphones and we would do some different things in some instances where he did enjoy it. If we could just mitigate some of that louder noise, like fireworks on the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. But it was really hard to get him to a place where we could say, you know, we have some tools to use if you have these problems and, you know, we want you to try it and you can always leave. It's real easy for kids to get stuck in that place where, well, this this was really bad for me last time, so I'm not even going to try something now. Absolutely, because so many kids have that memory that they remember how they felt and how their body felt. And that that one time they were put into that uncomfortable environment and then they want to avoid it. And then, you know, it's, it's that place where then one thing turns into another and they don't want to deal with the anxiety comes, the anxiety turns into a behavior, the behavior turns into a meltdown. And it's just one of those things that are really challenging for so many kids. Yeah. And, and for parents, they can start to recognize some of those triggers. You know, we definitely know that a loud, crowded place is going to be triggering. Um, he's pretty much at the point where he's not going to melt down anymore for that, but it certainly was something that happened in the past or even a visually chaotic place. It didn't even have to be sound. Just anything that was a lot and kind of overwhelming was really triggering. And when parents start to realize where those triggers are, we can either, like we were talking about, mitigate them, use tools and strategies to help, or find a different way to enjoy that particular activity. Um, And then also, we visit our OTs and we get therapy for these things that they're struggling with so that there can be improvement. Absolutely. And I think one of the main things too that I always kind of tell my families and my kids is preparation is huge. Mm-hmm. Preparing the kid for what's going to come, reading books, if it's a child who's a little bit younger, reading books to them, showing them videos of a place where they might be, you know, taking a video of your own child in a place that may have been overwhelming at one point, but then, you know, they were able to get through it and a video of them like being happy um, in that place. Because at first a child may remember a negative experience there, but a lot of times it winds up being a positive experience. So parents having pictures and videos to kind of remind the kid, you know, at first you were nervous, but then remember this happened. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I find that's really, really helpful too, because the child's able to see themselves, enjoying themselves, having a good time and getting over that initial uh, overwhelming feeling. And that's really beautiful too. Yeah, planning is so huge because I think a lot of kids who have sensory struggles also have some anxiety, even if it's completely driven by the sensory struggle and it's not its own standalone diagnosis. Absolutely. I have always found I have anxiety myself. I have a daughter who has anxiety. Preparation, making a plan for all the what ifs that our worry brain comes up with can be super helpful to then be okay with going forward and trying this new place or this new activity as well. And, you know, saying if it all goes wrong and you just can't handle it, then we will work that out. We're not going to keep you here struggling and suffering, you know, we're, and I think our kids, 
in that catastrophizing, that's where they go. Oh my gosh, I'm going to go to this place. It's going to be so awful. And I'm not going to be able to leave, right? And and everything's going to be bad. Absolutely. Uh, I totally agree with that. And I think that Working so closely to the speech therapist, I've learned that social stories really help a lot of those younger kids too to get through those more challenging situations as well. You know, the internet has everything now and speech therapists, you know, if your child has their own private speech therapist, making a social story for a situation that might be a little bit more challenging is definitely helpful. And I know the company that I work for, we work so closely to collaborate with with each other on each specific child. And a speech therapist will say to me, hey, Nikki, I really need help with this. And I could give them tips and, and guide them with some sensory stuff to add into their social story. So that's always a really beautiful thing as well. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what you do in OT. When you have um, a child you're working on either sensory seeking, sensory avoiding, or both, what kind of activities can parents kind of expect to see the therapist doing with their child, but also to be asked to do in the interim between appointments, because it's really important, of course, to keep working on what you're working on there in your clinic at home and and in between with our kids. Absolutely. So for me, I'm one of those OTs. I absolutely love obstacle courses. I can use them all day long for so many different diagnoses for so many different reasons. Um, An obstacle course is so beautiful because you could add in some heavy work. And what I mean by that is just anything that the child can do that incorporates using their muscles to put it into, you know, parent friendly terms. Mm -hmm. So for me, animal walking. Um, I love it. Bear crawling, crab walking, wheelbarrow walking. All of that is going to give a child some uh, deep pressure input and some heavy work to all the, to their muscles and their joints, um, to their core, to improve their strength. And that's going to really help a child to kind of calm down and relax a little bit. Um, in addition to, to that, when we're seeing the kids with an obstacle course, the transitioning is really, really great. They're following an adult-directed sequence. So they're doing something that may be moving around, such as the jumping and the animal walking, climbing and swinging, and then transitioning to something else, which may be um, sitting down to do some type of fine motor task to help them improve their attention. Mm-hmm. So at home, you know, parents are like, well, we don't have all that equipment that you have. We don't have a swing. We don't have a rock wall. We, how would you want us to do that? It's easy. Anything that you have at home, we can adapt. If you have couch cushions that come off the couch, you can use that. A kid crawling across that or walking across it, that soft um, texture is going to be a little bit harder to maneuver over and around. If you have a towel or a blanket, roll it up. Let's use that as a balance beam. The kiddo has to use their muscles to stay on on the balance beam or jumping over it to make it like a line, right? So we can definitely teach the parents and work with the parents on the proprioceptive input at home and the heavy work at home for sure. Yeah, and at school too, I know a lot of times parents will ask teachers to have their child carry uh, maybe the gym equipment out to recess, the big basket of balls and jump ropes or to carry a stack of books to the library. I know we also used crunchy snacks yep. and gum 
gum was a big one because it kept him from chewing everything else in the world when he could chew gum. Um, Yeah, you just, and there's so many products and tools too. You know, we had chew necklaces and chew toppers for the end of the pencil and um, so many of those little things too that really help at school that aren't so obvious to other kids because some kids are really sensitive to that. Absolutely. Starting it off as soon as they wake up in the morning is really key too. As soon as they w- they get up out of bed, they can stomp like a dinosaur to brush their teeth. Then we're going to use like a vibrating toothbrush, right? Or a really um, minty or a flavor toothpaste that they like. And just really target that sensory system just as soon as they wake up. And then, um, you know, throughout the day, incorporating, just like you said before, crunchy snacks, chewy snacks. So for for breakfast, you know, giving them um, some cereal or that bacon or something like that. And then a snack, the apple or the carrots and the celery, if your kid, you know, isn't that much of a picky eater and they want to eat those crunchy snacks, pretzel rods, animal crackers. You know, I think that that's really important to just incorporate that throughout the day as well. And so that's basically kind of feeding our sensory seekers. We're giving them those heavy work activities and things that they are kind of lacking that sense, I guess. I'm not I'm not very good at explaining this. I understand proprioceptive input, of course, because that was huge for my own son. But, you know, my understanding is there's a lack of that sense. And so they're getting that sense by crashing into things or chewing something crunchy or pulling something that maybe a big elastic or something like that. And the pulling stuff too, I love that you just said that because that's something that's super easy to incorporate. If you get a yoga band or a TheraBand, um, you can just tie it right at the bottom of the chair that they're sitting in and your kid can put their feet right on it and move it back and forth. And it just works as a really nice um, fidget for their feet. Yeah. And a hot ball. We had a hot ball. And he would do homework on that hot ball, bouncing up and down. He would do everything. He would motor around the house, bouncing up and down on that hot ball for a long, long time, probably a few years until he outgrew it. Um, Trampolines for families who have trampolines. That's a, a really good one for sensory seekers too. Absolutely. And I love that you just said that you let your son sit on that ball during homework, because I think that's something that's really big, too. A lot of parents will say, you know, I just want my kid to sit down and do their work. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Unfortunately, that's just not how their sensory system is working right now. So learning to adapt and modify um, those times that you may see your kid acting out for what you think is acting out, right? So letting them stand up instead of sit down, sit them down on a wiggle seat. Um, put something underneath their feet so that they could wiggle a little bit. Um, let them take a break after five minutes. Get up, do some jumping jacks. Just like you said, if you have a trampoline, jump on that trampoline for a little bit. Do some wall push-ups, do some wall sits, and then come back to homework. Right. So just giving a little bit more time so that they could have some sensory breaks is really key for kids of all ages, from the preschool level all the way throughout. Yeah. I mean, we all focus in different ways. And for sensory seekers, it's often by getting that stimulating input that then helps them to be able to focus more. And we, I learned very young at age six that he was going to have to figure out a different way to do his schoolwork. 
um, not just from a sensory perspective, but he also has dysgraphia. So, you know, writing homework was a big challenge as well. And we just decided to get really creative and kind of let him lead. If he needed to stand on his head on the sofa to do his reading work, fine. It's not hurting anything. It's not hurting anyone. It's not the traditional way to do your homework, but does it matter? You know, that's a lot of the special parenthood is getting creative and asking yourself, you know, challenging your own beliefs that kids have to sit at a desk and sit still and it has to be quiet in the room to, to study in the most effective way. That's completely untrue for a lot of people. And it's especially, I think, more true for more of our population of kids with ADHD or even autism. Absolutely. And I think you kind of touched upon something that, you know, everyone's sensory system is definitely different. So I always will tell a new parent who's new to the OT world, we all have our own ways to decompress or to manage our our emotions. So sometimes people sit there and they'll tap their knee or you'll twirl your hair or you'll chew gum. And these are ways that you're coping with something that may be causing you as an adult anxiety and you don't even realize that you're giving yourself this type of input, right? And sometimes these kids just need help to figure out what works best for their body, for their sensory system, what's going to get them through a challenging situation, what's going to get them through their work. So I think that's important too for families to also kind of take a look at them at themselves and kind of say, all right, this is what I do when I'm upset about something. This is what I do when I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And, you know, a lot of parents will quickly realize, wow, we do a lot of things to adapt throughout the day. Yeah, we all have our adaptation strategies. And as a parent, you may have your own set of those strategies and your child might be completely and utterly different. My kids and my husband, everybody in my house except for me, needs music constantly to focus, to get something done, to feel even comfortable in their own space and skin. I, on the other hand, cannot focus at all if there's any other noise. You know, I know lots of people talk about going to the coffee shop and sitting there and being able to then focus and do their work or write a write an article or something that they couldn't do at home. Mm-hmm. For me, I wouldn't get anything done. I would not get one word on the page. Well, that's a perfect people watching opportunity, right? <laughs> right, right. You can see how different people are in different environments too yeah. that way. But we have to really recognize that just because something was very true for us doesn't mean that it's at all true for our kids. And if I said, no, you cannot have music, while you do your homework, you can't get anything done that way, then I'm actually handicapping them because they get more done that way. And I have really just rested myself on my own needs without understanding and acknowledging that our kids' needs can be completely different from our own. And even, you know, ADHD is very genetic. We have lots of parents who also have ADHD themselves, but you can still be very different (laughs) in your needs and your strategies and the way that you work and focus than your child who has the same diagnosis, but it looks different. Every individual with ADHD is an individual. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, it's also different, right? And another thing that I'll always tell the families of the kids I'm working with is create a calm down box for your kid or a comfort box for your child. So just get like one of those really big bins that you can go to Target, right? It's nice and clear. It's see-through, whatever it is. And really figure out what it is that you know that calms your child down, something that they really, really love and try to kind of touch on all those senses. So I'll say, hey... Um, what smell does your child crave? What do they really love? A lot of times, like, oh, you know what? My kid loves the smell of citrus or lavender. So get some essential oils that smell like that. Throw it in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, my kid has this one uh, textured blanket that they absolutely love. Um, it's really comforting for them. It calms them down. Well, let's see what that material is and let's get that material. Throw that in the box as well. Coloring books for some kids are really uh, calming. For others, it's totally opposite. It sets them off. So, you know, every kid is different. Let's figure it out. Some kids just like to do a puzzle, right? Figuring out those puzzle jigsaws. Get a box, throw it in. Something that is going to cause comfort for your child in those situations where they're feeling a little bit overwhelmed or over aroused that's really helpful to just have somewhere to go, pull that out and present your child with all of those things that we know that they love already. Yeah. And it's a process to figure out what works for your child. People ask me all the time, well, what tools do we use for calming down? Well, there's a lot of them and and not every tool will work for every kid. So you really have to experiment with that some too. You know, a big one for us is a weighted blanket because again, that proprioceptive input. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've used the weighted blanket, of course, to sleep, but we also have pulled it out during a frustrating period in homework Mm -hmm. and he puts it on his back like a cape, you know, and he's getting that input that he needed. Absolutely. Or when they're doing the the hard homework, laying on their stomach and putting it over them while they're writing and doing their homework or reading something, same thing. You can use it, you know, not just to sleep. Yeah. So let's talk about sensory avoiders then. I think that that can lead into that conversation because they're often looking for more soothing, I think, Mm -hmm. um, in general. That's a very big generalization, I know. But what do we've talked about what sensory avoiders look like? What kinds of activities are going to be helpful? What do you do um, in occupational therapy with those children? Yeah. So let's touch upon um, the tactile sense, right? The sense of touch. That's probably the one of the biggest um, types of kiddos who I see coming in. Parents will say, you know what? They really, they do not like their hands messy. They do not want their, their face messy when they're eating. Like this is a really big challenge. So for me, a kiddo will come in and it looks like play to answer your question. OT looks like play. So I'll get shaving cream. We'll get kinetic sand, Play-Doh, Silly Putty. Um, just even sometimes soap and water and we'll play. We'll get I'll ask the families all the time, what is your child like? Superheroes, dolls, Barbies, trolls, cars, whatever it is that I know is going to motivate that child. I'm going to take it and I'm going to play with them with their preferred activity, with these sensory activities that may be a little bit more difficult. Mm, right. So uh, that shaving cream might be snow, right? We're going to put, we're going to put up, the troll in the snow, and then we're gonna we're gonna get them all clean. We're gonna throw it into a soapy water bath, and it seems really silly, but that is what really will start to get the kid to understand. All right, this isn't so bad. Um, slowly, I'm never going to take their hand and shove them in. Right? We may start with gloves on. 
sometimes we may start with just me touching it or the child holding my wrist and and guiding my hand into these different scary textures for for them you know mm-hmm. um it may start with just their fingertip or just the back of their hand right them allowing me and i'll always ask is it okay if miss nikki does this is it okay if Nikki puts this on you. I want them to know that they could trust me. I want them to know that I'm not going to hurt them and that whatever I'm presenting to them is going to be okay. Yeah, that's so important. You know, finding that line of how much to push and challenge and where we're crossing the line and we're doing more harm than good can be really hard sometimes. I think, you know, taking it slow as you're talking about really breaking it down into far smaller steps than most of us would naturally think about doing is really key when we're challenging those sensory issues that kids want to avoid. I know when my son started, he was, I guess, six or seven, and he was a swing avoider. He would not get on the swings on the playground. And it always really was so confusing to me. I'm like, this kid crashes into walls why is he not swinging? You know, he was super little and we didn't know ADHD or sensory or any of these other pieces yet. It just seemed really odd that there was this one kind of big movement activity that he avoided. And I remember in therapy, you know, they would start by figuring out, was there a different swing or a different direction that worked for him? And they ended up starting with, I think, a hammock and turning it so he was swinging sideways instead of forward, you know, swinging for just a really short amount of time, and then building a little longer and a little longer, and then maybe they turned the swing. And this was over weeks and weeks of time. And, you know, he still would never choose to swing on the playground. There were many other things he would prefer to do, but he no longer avoided. And he got to the point where a hammock chair hanging from the ceiling in our house is one of his favorite places to go, even now as a teenager. It's comfort for him. And he doesn't swing it like crazy, but just that sort of suspension and the squeeze that it gives you when it wraps around you with your weight in it was really magical for him. Definitely. That lycra material is really, really nice. Yeah. Or even the rope. Like now we have the the rope kind because He's man size, so we had to get something that was adult. A little size. more durable. <laughs> yes, yes. But you know, it it I just I try to remember and pull from that experience as often as I can with him. So when I need to challenge him with something, how far can I break that down? How tiny of a step can we start with so that it's not overwhelming? So it doesn't feel like I'm just pushing him to be something he's not or do something he's not comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, Thank you for even bringing that up. Because I think one of the first steps for many, many children, depending on um, how over or under aroused they get, is just that exposure. So even if the child, let's just pretend that it is, let's say it's yogurt, that's really can set a child off. Having just the family have that yogurt in their in their visual field, being able to tolerate something just around you is really the first step. And I think that's 
so hard for families to kind of understand because they were like, oh, I just want them to eat this one food or just play with this one thing. And this child, you know, their brain is telling you, oh my goodness, you can't even look at it. Never mind, smell it, touch, touch it, taste it. So just, you know, small steps up a hierarchy and just making sure that even if being around them is okay and comfortable for that child. Yeah. And I would really recommend for families to do this with the help of an occupational therapist. You know, we didn't do occupational therapy for the last 11 years straight. We've done two different year-long stints in OT to work on different things at different age brackets. And so it's not something that you have to do all the time. And and I'm sure you do this in every OT I've ever met or talked to. They give you the ideas, the strategies, the knowledge that you need to then be able to carry this out at home and continue through with it. And I think sometimes when you're pushing those avoidances, you have to be so, so careful. And it really could be most helpful to do that with an occupational therapist. Absolutely. And we will always give the family an individualized sensory diet that they could follow at home and the things that the teachers can incorporate throughout the day so that the child is comfortable and being able to really succeed and maximize their potential in all of their environments at home, during play, on sports teams, uh, whatever it is, you know, we will individualize it for for your child. So. You know, starting off, I know before you said from a very young age, early intervention is really key. Detecting these little things that may get bigger when they get older, I think attacking it as soon as you first realize it is so important. And if you don't realize it as a parent, that's okay too, right? But when you do finally realize it, coming on in and being able to just, you know, work with your child and and get them the help that they need. Yeah. And the way that we interpret the world through our senses then incorporates the autonomic nervous system, which is our self-regulation. And so even things that we see as parents of kids with ADHD that we wouldn't automatically say are connected to something sensory likely are. You know, I've been working on studying polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve a lot lately. And I've had a couple of episodes prior to this already on that to talk about it. And what I'm realizing more and more is that sensory is fueling a lot of behavior, even if it doesn't look like it at all. And using what we know about the autonomic nervous system can really help us mitigate a lot of challenging behavior. It can help us make our kids more comfortable in different situations. And so very much of that is fueled by their sensory experience. And for all of us, yeah, I mean, even for those of us who don't have ADHD or autism. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, another important thing to kind of remember is that every child is different. I know we've said that so many times, but just something that may you may read on the internet that worked for one child, that really might not work for yours. So there's so many different things that are out there and so many amazing tools and adaptations that can be made for your child. Like no matter what it is, we could always figure it out. And there's always something that's going to help him or her to really succeed. Yeah. One last question I have for you before we close is uh, many, many of us are now going into the fall school season 
and going back to school. And many of our kids are doing that virtually at home. I know that our school system for high school age, which my son is, is 100% remote learning. How do we manage these sensory needs and help kids to focus in an environment where they don't typically have to. You know, my son is like, I don't do school at home. I don't want to do school at home. You know, it's been a struggle already. And so I think a lot of us are really scared, to be honest, scared of how it's going to go and are kids going to engage and are they going to learn now that this is something that's going to continue. You know, at the end of last school year, we thought, okay, well, this is short term. Well, now we know it's not short term. And I think sensory play can really be helpful. Sensory play can absolutely be helpful. And um, here are some tips that I've been telling all of my families. I actually, I have it all written down to just kind of, I'm spitting that out like wildfire to everybody. Yeah, I bet. Using a picture, a picture schedule for the day's events. If you can't do a picture schedule, just something that will prepare for what's coming next. That consistency and that predictability is so important right? Allowing your child to stand up at the desk or the dining room table or wherever it is, instead of having them just sitting down. As you mentioned before, getting a therapy ball for your child may be really, really helpful or getting a fold up trampoline that you would take out, let your child bounce a little bit, getting those breaks in between the classes and in between these Zoom meetings that are happening. Um, Decrease the number of paper and pencil type activities, right? Incorporate movement and multi-sensory instruction instead. Um, Using a timer is so helpful, right? Tell your child, you have five minutes to do X, Y, and Z. And when that timer comes off, goes off, I'm going to need you to come back and focus again, buddy. Creating that calming space or that calming area where your child can go to decompress, right? Getting a beanbag, a weighted blanket, going into a small tent or a tunnel for the little ones, that's super helpful. And then for some kids, if if all that does work or doesn't work, a reward will work wonders for a lot of kids as well, right? Filling up a little mason jar full of pom-poms or cotton balls every time you see a child, being able to transition or focus or attend for a certain amount of time and really just giving them that positive reinforcement and telling them, you know, you can do this. I think that's so helpful. Yeah. And I think for younger kids, it really is an opportunity to be so creative. When my son was in like first, second grade, he wasn't writing well, it wasn't legible. And so when we did spelling homework, we did spelling with pasta, dried pasta. We had a whole bucket of alphabet and number cookie cutters and a bucket of Play-Doh. And he would spell words that way. Or he would hop on his ball up and down and tell me one letter at a time. And, you know, there were so many ways. He, he had the knowledge and he was learning it. He just didn't do well with written output. And there are so many options. Spelling it in shaving cream on the desk, I know that's a big one. Um, Just really getting creative could save your sanity a bit. Two of my favorite ones for the summer so far have been putting the sight words inside of hopscotch. Go outside with some chalk, 
write the words inside of squares, do hopscotch, or put it, find a wall, go to the schoolyard, go somewhere where you have like a nice brick wall, put them on the wall, get a beanbag or, or a tennis ball and have your kid throw it and then spell it and, and identify and just make it fun, you know, just, yeah. just make it more fun. I think that's the biggest takeaway is that learning for kids with ADHD, it doesn't have to be boring. We can make it fun and keep them interested. Yeah, we absolutely can. It's just a matter of really looking at how they learn, what their sensory needs are, and then incorporating creativity. And I think for a lot of kids with ADHD, movement is super helpful and and some tactile input. My son had Velcro on his desk for a long time so that he could rub that rough part of the Velcro and get some sensory input when he did need to sit at his desk for a period um, just really thinking about all those things and making it fun. You know, it doesn't have to be, it, it feels so overwhelming. I know I'm not playing down the pandemic at all. I have struggled with it like anybody else and maybe more at times. But, you know, we, we have some control and how our kids have to learn and, and be able to do their schoolwork and participate with whatever school looks like for them can be a myriad of different things. It can look totally different. And I think thinking outside the box like that can really save us as parents. It can really save our sanity. I totally agree with you. And just adapting to your child's needs, like as it happens, right? This is all territory for everyone. So just really learning to cope with it together as a team, I think is really important. Yeah, absolutely. This has been such an enlightening conversation. I'm so thankful to have connected with you and for you sharing a little bit of your time and wisdom with the audience. Um, And I encourage everyone listening to absolutely find an occupational therapist to work with for a while and really get to know your kid on that level because it really does impact so much of what's going on with them. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me and giving me the opportunity to to share my beautiful profession with everybody. Yeah, so lovely. For everyone listening, you can get the show notes at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 101 for episode 101. I will have links to uh, Nikki's website. I think there's some social media as well, where you can connect and learn from her and her colleagues further. And as I always do, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to explore some more and, and find out what else you can learn from the experts that we are so thankful to have on the podcast. So with that, we're at the end of this episode and I will see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com. Parenting ADHD and Autism.com.